Welcome back to Desert Rain Community Radio. Uh, This is episode four. Uh, It's the second part of our two-part series on Celtic Christianity. David Morrison and I explore some more um, concepts and ideas around the topic. Um, Before we get into it, though, I would like to let you know that you can go to theruin.com and find some of uh, David's writings there as well as learn a little bit more about Desert Rain Community. You can also find us on Facebook, Desert Rain Community. I also would like to thank Diego for his editing ability on this show. Also, Eric at Star City Studios. Um, Also like to thank the guys at Monk Drums, Jacob, Greg, and Donnie. Uh, You can check out some of our story and some of the drums at monkdrums.com. And with all that being said... Let's get into it. Jump into the conversation. Good evening. Well, you might be listening to this at any time of the day here at Desert Rain Community Radio. Uh, Welcome back. Uh, We are here today with the second part of uh, the Celtic Christianity uh, that we we talked about uh, last episode. And uh, I'm here with David Morrison. Hello, hello. Mr. Morrison, how are you doing tonight? Not bad, not bad. Looks like how we might yourself? be getting some rain. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so too. I'm doing I'm doing well. Uh, for those that don't know or have never lived in the desert, any opportunity to even get a sprinkling of rain is is a is a big event. It's a big deal. <laughs> so, 8 inches a year. It's a happy day, so. Uh so one of the things I'd like to bring up with you today, uh, David, is since you all have moved out, and maybe 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 not the community, maybe this is more a question for you specifically, but one of the things that that uh, Celtic Christianity leaned on was uh, a contemplative lifestyle, um, being being in uh, meditation, contemplation, reflection, and uh, and actually either turning it into a way of life or just living your life in such a way that contemplation, that's what it is. That's what your yeah. life has become. And so maybe you could share a little bit about your personal experience uh, with uh, that and what that's looked like here at Desert Rain. Well, I, you know, I, I I think the early Irish monks, I don't think they set out to be contemplatives in the sense that a lot of modern people do today. Um, usually if you have an ambition to be a spiritual person, uh, all you'll get is spiritual ambition in the end. Yeah, it'll, so it's a it'll, tricky thing. It'll boomerang on you real yeah, quick. Yeah, exactly. And so... Uh, but I, I think I think the Irish psyche, and, and when I say Irish, the Scottish, the Welsh, the mm-hmm. the, the British Isles, the, the, I think they were already set up. Uh, their psyche was already kind of set up in that uh, uh, being so isolated and alienated mm. from the Roman Empire and from quote unquote civilization. Right. Um, Having their own. Yeah. So they civilization still had what. The empire people would call pagan, which 
a, a pagan mindset, which literally in Latin, pagan just means uh, country dwellers. Interesting. So people that are connected to the land. Right. And, uh, and so, I, yeah. And so which, I th- which is probably goes back deep into human history. Exactly. People that exactly. are connected to the land. That we're, we've spent more time as a uh, species connected to the land than we have connected to urban areas or, you know. Yeah, exactly. I think it's what, uh, I think it was Owen Barfield, I believe. So uh, English philosopher called it original participation. And, and we, and the human race lost that connection when we went into cities and towns. And you see the mourning of that, even in the most ancient uh, uh, writing that's found the uh, Epic of Gilgamesh from Mesopotamia. Okay. And that even mourns the loss of, of that connectedness to the wild. Well, and it's funny because I think we're going through a morning of that through internet. Yeah. And being connect, you know, we're more connected online in some senses than we are with other people and definitely with the land. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, I'm speaking with a broad stroke, but. Yeah, it's just that paradox of technology. It's brought us together in ways that we couldn't be together. We can send a, mm-hmm. a, a, you know, a piece of mail instantly through email or, or uh, text, and mm-hmm. but yet people are feeling more isolated and uh, not belonging than ever before. Yeah, it's such an interesting uh, contradiction. Yeah, well, not a contradiction, but um, but yeah, speak a little bit more about that original participation. Yeah, so so as Irish Christianity developed. There, there wasn't the, the uh, separation between secular and sacred. Okay. Uh, and so often in, in contemporary Christianity, there's definitely that compartmentalization. Well, and definitely in America. Yeah, for sure, yeah. yeah. This is my church life, and then there's my real life. Uh, or um, I'll go to church so that I can get to heaven somehow. Uh, but for my day-to-day kinds of things, I'll go... Uh, I'll go look at tarot cards or I'll, uh, you know, I'll go see a shaman or something <laughs> like that. Well, and two, I think a lot of people use uh, the church as almost like a country club setting. Maybe less now, but I think 10, 20, 30 yeah. years ago. Well, the rumblings I'm hearing now, people in their 30s, yeah, that is, they are using church to schmooze and to network mm. their businesses and things like that because of the gig economy. But I don't know. I'm not in that world, yeah, so. Who knows? Um, but anyways, original participation. Yeah, being so connected it's, to the earth, and so theologically it becomes uh, what you know, what Christianity would call the incarnation, or the sacramental way of living, which is uh, the divine, uh, the claim of Christianity: the divine became human in Jesus of Nazareth, and fully human, fully God, fully integrated. Uh, no way to know where the divine started, where the human ended. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a taking of that theology, if you will, that belief into your actual life and integrating everything into the divine. Everything is holy. Uh, and, it, and it stems even further back to the Hebrew prophetic call. Uh, I, I believe it was uh, Zechariah who said, uh, you know, even the most common, mundane, profane Items such as the, I think he says, like the bells on the horses, 
mm. will say, will be inscribed holy unto the Lord. Uh, the common dish will, will be the same as a dish in the Holy of Holies kind of thing. And so it's this, it's this uh, idea that heaven is fully intertwined with earth. And you definitely see that in the uh, accounts of the gospel of the, the, the temple curtain being torn. Mm, right. So there is no veil in that sense. Mm-hmm. And so, and it is finished. And so, so that's kind of the spirituality that we're talking about. And, and, and St. Francis took it to the next level, really, uh, with Franciscanism and, and his, you know, popular, even to this day, uh, the Canticle of the Sun, Brother Sun, mm-hmm. Sister Moon. It's very akin to what Native Americans would say, that the prayer of all my relations. Right. I look at the stars, all my relations. And so it's, it's a powerful sense of belonging, uh, even though you're a pilgrim on the earth, but uh, but at the same time, it's this it's this long it's this uh, longing within that makes you wander, but it's also this belonging, mm-hmm. and and it's an amazing way to live. Yeah, and I remember the first time it was probably three or four years ago, probably three years ago, the first time I heard. Well, I might have heard it before then, but really heard and read that uh, Saint Francis prayer that you're talking yeah. about, and it just. It cuts through everything and like hits hits on such a level that it's it, extremely relatable. Like yeah. it's like, yeah, that's that's I couldn't articulate it. Luckily, Francis did. Yeah, it took a, a musician and a poet yeah. to do that, and and he lived it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and and one of the things uh, to kind of go back to that human divine connection. Uh, Yesterday, my mom and I were having a conversation, and that was one of the things we were talking about, like trusting our ourself or trusting our intuition. And, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, I'm human, so I'm fallible, but there's also divinity within me. Right. And so, and this is just my opinion at this point, but if I if I'm doing the practices, if I'm if I'm studying, if I'm meditating, if I'm praying, if I'm being of service to others, um, when I'm doing all those things first and foremost in my life, I can usually trust my intuition really well. Like my intuition, like is right on. But then when I'm engaged with those other those ego things, right, right. trying to get the money, trying to get the girl, trying to get. The cool Status. car, yeah, chasing chasing the worldly things. My intuition is out to lunch, mm. you know, or it'll still be working, but I'll justify it away. Right. Like, oh, no, it'll be different. This, like, I don't need to listen to that. Yeah, the ego can be very tricky that way. Yeah, and so, and when, you know, and the ego isn't necessarily part of our life. Like, I heard it once said, uh, I want just enough ego so I don't walk into oncoming traffic. Yeah, that's a good that's a good way to cuz uh, I cuz I used to my younger more zealous days I used to see the ego as uh what's translated in the New Testament as the flesh which should be crucified and killed. Um mm. and so I saw it as an enemy to, to be uh hacked off if you will. Mm-hmm, right. Uh now I see it no it's it's a part of who you are it's a part of your psyche. Yeah. And um, and it got you, you know, through got you where you are now. And so it's to be a servant, mm-hmm. not to be served. And uh, and and so really, yeah. So this incarnational way of living, or this uh, sacramental way of living, is to make friends with the ego mm-hmm. in that sense. And 
and to incorporate it. And anything that, that's not integrated into your life ends up becoming an enemy that will burn your village down. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, easily, especially the ego. I think the ego is a perfect example of that. So uh, within this, this uh, rhythm of life, what and may, you know and maybe it started before you got to desert rain but but what what does that look like how has it evolved um you know maybe maybe we can start with like where did where did you start noticing or paying attention to to a, a rhythm of life well for me i mean i've always been a a child of the church if you will so so definitely the liturgical seasons mm. have been a big part of my life uh, especially uh, the last 30 years or so. And so, and then of course the, the turning of the four seasons, even though we don't have distinct seasons here in a desert, but yeah, we, we do if you look hard enough and well, feel the wind the, just enough, you know? Yeah, I think, well, especially like springtime, it's windy. Right. Like that's when you know it's springtime. Yeah. So. So, so to, yeah, to keep yourself out, if, if you have, so I live by small rules and these rules didn't, I didn't cognitively make them up. I just found myself living them. And then it became the rule mm. of life, which is uh, if you have the opportunity to go outside, go outside every time. If you have the opportunity to experience uh, any of the five senses uh, with the outdoors, do so. And so it's a very simple way to live. But uh, if you're on a coffee break, uh, go outside, mm -hmm. you know, and... Uh, you might even meet some smokers out there and some, and they have some interesting stories. You know? Right. So, yeah, um, you might connect with someone on a deeper level Yeah. just because of that 10 minutes or something. Exactly. And and to feel the sunlight on your face, that, that could make a huge... These little things are the things that make the biggest differences. Uh, you know, maybe it could be the 10 minutes of sunshine on your face could be more uh, uh, giving of peace than... A Prozac, perhaps, you know, who knows? I'm not telling people to go off their Prozac. Right, don't, don't. <laughs> you can't stay on your meds. <laughs> yeah, we're not doctors. <laughs> but I'm saying it couldn't hurt, you know, uh, you know. And so, 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 yeah, so it's kind of rules like that. Um, and so, and then, it, and then it extends out to the community. So anytime that we have a liturgical gathering, which is usually on Sundays, we try to meet outside most of the year mm -hmm. under trees, you know, with the desert in view. Um, it's just a, it's just a good way to live. Yeah. It's, it's uh, interesting for me, um, this idea of a rhythm of life, because I don't, I don't necessarily know that I've ever really engaged with a cyclical way of life. Um, or at least not, not uh, in a direct. You're talking about the liturgical seasons, or well, I mean, like Advent, Christmas. Yeah, or even like like you were talking about the season, like the actual four seasons. Oh, the four seasons. Yeah. Like the only time I can really remember, and you know, and like you said, we grew up in the deserts, a little bit different. But when I lived in the Northeast, uh, all I knew is that I I hated winter mm. like i really wished the worst for winter you know i was miserable during that time and actually some of that has to do with not having access to the sun like yeah, i do year yeah. round in the desert but and football was over 
Well, it, or it started. It's it's mid season, baby. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, deep winter football's over. And, yeah, February. And it just, it's just it's terrible. just a miserable a miserable time in the Northeast. And some people love that, right? But but I don't think I ever really paid attention or engaged in in a um, conscious way until, like you said, uh, coming to Desert Rain. You know, being out here for a couple of years. It's far more noticeable in my life today than it was two years ago. Mm, just by living out here. That's interesting. Well, and being, you know, like you were saying, going to the Sunday services yeah, and having, having conversations with you, community, conversations with Jacob, um, you know, remembering, you know, like when you, uh, Marsh and I and Kirsten went to Phoenix last summer, mm. right? Like that. We were reminiscing about that recently and and um and just being you know like being like that was fun and you know right and this is a different summer and and you know what how is it going to play out and this and that so with speci- specifically what has the contemplative rhythm of life looked like here at Desert Rain? Well, I mean, there's the externals of prayer, and but, we, but we're big believers in uh, go to your cell or go to the desert and mm. it'll teach you everything you need to know. And so, so I think on one hand, there might be uh, an individual might have to have a, a willfulness to engage in spiritual disciplines. They need to, you know, maybe study or they need to pray or fast. Uh, we leave that, you know, I leave that up to individuals mm-hmm. to decide. But underneath that willfulness, there's a, there's the grace of God. And, and the grace of God is mysterious. And it's, you know, and grace will bring you the author that you need, that needs yeah. to speak into your life. And so often the, the book that you need will, will find you it's looking for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes it's been sitting on your shelf for 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe you've read it before, but yeah. it, now you're going to read it with new eyes. and Or the prayer that you need to pray, it will be brought to you. Uh, and all of a sudden you'll be able to articulate it. Or not articulate it, but it, it was some sort of utterance that came out. Um, and, you know, there's there's this, I was thinking about this today. There's a, in the Hebrew scriptures, there's this sense of, of God herself being looking for a resting place. Um, I believe it was in, in Exodus or maybe Numbers, the children of Israel, when they'd see the cloud, the pillar of cloud in the desert, the fire by night, uh, and it would begin to move. They would say something. They had some a liturgical prayer or shout or song right. where they would say, Arise, O Lord, and return to your resting place. Mm. And and it was a tent in the desert. It was temporary. Um, so you have this sense of God having a restlessness of looking for home. And then you have the prophet Isaiah saying, you know, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool, but who will build a house that I could dwell in? Um, and so there's this longing in the heart of God that meets the longing in the heart of a human being to to have a sense of, of home, a sense of belonging, even though we're in the wilderness, even though we're in this temporary kind of place. 
And so, so I think when those two longings meet, uh, your contemplative life begins, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, that was, <laughs> that was beautiful. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you very much. The Hebrew prophets, they'll be here all week. For longer than that, <laughs> probably. <laughs> so, the Hebrew prophets, the Hebrew scriptures, a lot of people could um, kind of brush that off as ancient texts. Um, that That's not practical for today. Mm. So how do we so how would you articulate that longing of God meeting the longing of an individual or a community um, within the current modern way of life? Yeah, again, I would say the grace of God is alive, it's active. It's the initiation of God bursting into the arenas of our lives with with God's presence. Um, to talk about another Celtic uh, heretic, I mean, uh, Saint uh, <laughs> Pelagius, uh, in his arguments with Augustine, uh, he would say, uh, when, when a child is born into this world, that child is God being reborn into this world. Mm. we're seeing the image of God taking place again. And so, and that was one of the reasons why he was branded a heretic and had to, they believe he, he had to, uh, was banished and, and went into exile back to uh, England, mm. maybe Ireland. And then he wrote letters in Augustine's name. <laughs> his, his contradictory. That's you know, so he had a life after Augustine. Right. Uh, and, and, and Augustine won the day in the arguments that we were born in this original sin. We're broken. God is not pleased with you when you're born. Um, it cast a long shadow and still does today. Yeah. But I think at the end of the day, in all of humanity, I think Pelagius' vision wins and is winning. Um, and so, so I, I think it comes in very simple ways, in everyday ways, like gazing on uh, the face of a newborn baby, uh, helping a cricket out of your house, uh, very simple, small acts of kindness. Um, I, th I think these things work the, work the, their way through. And so, well, and it's amazing you 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 said that about the cricket. Um, well, just just about bugs in general. So Saturday morning, I woke up early so I could watch the sunrise mm. and. So I was probably out there 20, 30 minutes um, as the, the I, I could see the, it was coming up over a mountain. So the, the, I was watching more of the shadow that the mountain was casting before the actual sunrise. And right before the sun broke over the mountain, I saw this, this caterpillar hmm. on the fence post and was just totally infatuated with it. And where I was standing, it all lined up. Oh wow! Like so, the caterpillar was in between, right where the this, the um, sunrise was about to break, and and for me that was 
that was my moment of God. You know, yeah, you, exactly. You, you talked about earlier standing outside and, and just letting the sun hit your face for 10 minutes. And, you know, that that's what I did after the sun rose. You know, I spent time with that caterpillar. And, and, uh, and then the next morning I got up. Um, I didn't watch the sunrise, but I went out to see the caterpillar. <sighs> like it would still be on the fence post, right? 24 hours later. And it was gone, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> And it, yeah, and it reminds me of, I believe it was uh, John Scotus Eugenia, who was the premier scholar of the Middle Ages in Irish. His name means John from Scotland, John from mm. Ireland. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and I think he's quoted as saying, uh, you know, every living thing is a, is a theophany of God. And so, and, and he was the premier scholar of that time. That sounds like heresy today, mm -hmm. but that was, that was mainline uh, theology. That was what was being taught in the monasteries and what we'd later call seminaries in, in Christianity. Uh, every living thing is a theophany of God. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, and it actually just pulled it up. Every visible or invisible creature mm. is a theophany or appearance of God. Right. Wow. Well, you wouldn't expect that from the Middle Ages. <laughs> well, and it's, it, I mean, that obviously comes from someone that has lived this contemplative lifestyle that we're talking about. Exactly. He was brought up from, from those, you know. And, and, you know and, and you can make a parallel with Howard Thurman today. I, I believe Howard Thurman's probably the greatest theologian that America has ever produced. Mm. But his grandparents were slaves, and they had the most uh, profound influence on his theology and teaching throughout his life. And so they really, you know, there's, it's one thing to be a slave owner, and you're a Southern Baptist. Right. And it's another thing to be a slave, and you're holding on, and you're reading the scriptures as uh, Hebrew lives matter, and Pharaoh has to find out the hard way. Uh, yeah. That's profound. And so... And so, yeah, so John Scotus, in that sense, was brought up with these wild, uh, illiterate, if you will, or barely becoming literate uh, Irish people. Uh, and then he's able to put words to it in Latin and so forth. So here's Howard Thurman doing the same thing with uh, the slave uh, theology, mm -hmm. which is it's critical to the gospel. Uh that liberation uh, of humankind. And so, yeah, anyway, that was a strange parallel, but... No, I mean, that that's spot on. And I, I think, I know we, we've gone down, we kind of shoot off every now and then about uh, sort of American-type Christianity. And, yeah. you know, if, if, if you're looking at American Christianity without examining um, whether it was actual slaves or their descendants... Uh, and their inputs and additions or evolutions um, or perspective of the gospel. Right. You're not really paying attention to the to the full picture. Yeah, exactly. Which is dangerous, right? You're right. Like if you're only focusing on one thing, it's, you're just going to have blinders up to to the rest of it. And and one of the things about uh, when and we should have talked about this at the beginning, but this term contemplation i think a lot of times people would would uh be like oh yeah yeah i meditate okay yeah 
And it's like, well, okay, yeah, but I think, well, maybe just could you explain is contemplation and meditation the same or is it different and and how so? Yeah, Yeah, it's murky waters. It depends on who you're, who you talk to and which author you're reading. Uh, I've understood it to mean, uh, uh, like if you talk to the, to the far East, uh, particularly Buddhism, contemplation is the, is the technique of meditating. Mm. Whereas to us, meditation is the technique of meditating and, and contemplation is different. And so apparently we reverse them from East and West, uh, to some, the word mystic or mystical is, is an offensive term. They think of, uh, uh, strange end of times prophecies of mystics uh, mm-hmm. appearances of the Virgin Mary to get the world to pray the rosary um, those kinds of things whereas the other people would say a mystic is just somebody that sees the wonder of divine presence uh, everywhere and they're and they're and they're awestruck uh, by the beauty of it all and they pay attention to it and they yeah they're watching whether they're a scientist or whether they're someone that a poet, Spins to, yeah, a poet, a musician. Um, so I would, I would say, a contemplative is is simply, yeah, somebody that is awake and watching. Mm-hmm. Um, you see it again in the Hebrew scriptures, uh, particularly in the Psalms. One of the primary words of prayer is, "I wait, wait on the Lord," constantly waiting, and and in the the Gaelic or the Irish, old Irish. Uh, Word for contemplation is, according to Carl McCormack, uh, um, is uh, on the edge of waiting. You're on the when mm-hmm. you contemplate, you're on the edge of waiting. Um, I kind of like the Latin, which is uh, connected to early astronomers who would literally lie in a field at night and gaze upon the stars, and I and I really like that because it connects spiritually as well. That was the term for. The closest term for contemplation. contemplate, right, right? Yeah, and so I, I kind of like the New Testament, uh, Paul's words of gazing on the face of God in, or gazing on the beauty of God in the face of Christ Jesus, mm. and so, uh, and so you're looking for that face, right, in the face of a newborn, in the face of the stranger, in the face of your perceived enemies. Uh, it's powerful. Yeah, and it's it's. Once you've gotten to that point, and if you can stay at that point or revisit that point as much as possible, it's a game changer. It's yeah, a life changer. Exactly. Uh, and to go back to our first conversation, or yeah, our first conversation, uh, you're ruined. You're exactly. As soon as you see that and it connects and it yeah. hits you in the heart, it's game over. Like nothing will be the same at that point. Exactly. Um, in the best ways and in the worst ways. <laughs> and very simple ways. Yeah. You know, an example of that I would use for uh, gazing on the beauty of God in the face of Christ Jesus would be, because uh, that sounds very lofty and it's very poetic and it's beautiful. Uh, but Americans are, well, how does that play out in your real life, right? Mm. And so so an example yeah, what, would be... Uh, what's from, the bottom line? Yeah, they always want to know the bottom line. Well, uh, Parker Palmer, the, the great Quaker author, tells a story of... Uh, uh, he was living in community, I believe it was Pendle Hill or someplace like that in Pennsylvania, a, Quaker, a large Quaker right. community. And 
they would go in for silence every morning. And there was one particular uh, woman that he just could not stand her. <laughs> he did not like her. He just she just repulsed him. And uh, one day he was a little bit late for the for the morning sit, and he had to sit next to her. And so he was just <laughs> great. So he sat next to her, and then he opened his eyes briefly, or maybe it was when he was sitting down, and there was a, a kind of a beam of sunlight mm-hmm. resting on her as her hands were opened. And for that split moment, he saw her as the human being that she was. And and he didn't say it transformed his relationship with her, and they became right. best friends and went on windy yeah. walks together. Uh, but for that moment, uh, that's why I like his his practicality of things, it, his, his perception and his attitude toward her shifted because he, and so that's what I'm talking about, uh, of, of beholding or gazing on the beauty of God in the face of Christ Jesus. And I mean, with this specific example, being able to do it, uh, with or through another human being, right. Being reminded of that, that person's divinity, even if it only lasted, yeah, in that a moment. Second. And maybe right. that's all you need. That might be all yeah, you who need. who knows? Yeah. So, um, so my own personal experience, like I said, you know, moving to Desert Rain a couple of years ago, started far, probably a decade before I actually got here. Um, and one of the things that have, has been pivotal on my, uh, whether you call it spiritual walk or spiritual journey, uh, however you want to word it, um, this path that I'm, I'm on today has been uh, spiritual mentors. Mm. And um, which the, if you could explain what the, yeah. the Celtic idea around that um, is, and we, we can explore that for a little bit. Yeah, that's a very important theme in, in Celtic spirituality. And it, yeah, it's called the Anamkara in the Old Irish, which means soul friend. And the story goes is uh, that in the, in the early centuries of the church, certain sins would not be forgiven, such as adultery. Um, often you had to confess your sins to the entire group, uh, the entire church. Oh, wow. It was a very humiliating kind of thing. And uh, and so the soul friend kind of came up uh, in the absence of, of that rigid kind of Christianity of, of a, someone that you could be vulnerable with and, and confess your, your faults to. And because they would sit with you and uh, hold that, that silence and that tension with you and that vulnerability, they would, they would introduce compassion to it. And, and you could be uh, healed. It was a healing kind of relationship. It later became sacramentalized as confession mm-hmm. or penance uh, in, in later, later centuries. But that's kind of the, the development of it. And, and the, the professionals took it over. Right. Uh, and so it, <laughs> and it ruined it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some would say. The Protestants would surely say that. Uh, but a soul friend wasn't a, it wasn't a spiritual director. It wasn't a... Uh, a clergy member. It wasn't a licensed therapist or a life coach or any of those kinds of things. It was just someone uh, that you felt at home with. And you can tell they've struggled with their longings of homelessness, so to speak, 
of not belonging. And they've, and they've come to a sense of belonging by belonging others, if you will. Uh, and, and, and so that's kind of the, the concept behind it. John O'Donohue uh, wrote a book called Anamkara, I believe in the late 90s. It's well worth reading, uh, not just on that topic, but on, on many uh, related topics of that. And so, well, and um, sort of in the uh, current a current example of that would be in the recovery world, yeah. where you have a sponsor and sponsee. At the beginning, the sponsor is kind of like a leader, right? Uh, because you're you're still getting the alcohol out, out of your system, and you know your life has been totally you know, just a total tornado for however many years you've been drinking and using. But at some point, it that line disappears. Right. And you become uh, equals and you become just two people walking together in this thing called recovery. Yeah, it's powerful. It's amazing. It's a community that heals one another. Right. And part of that is, is, you know, in, in the fifth step, you sit down one-on-one and they share all those things they were going to, all the things you're shameful of and you were going to take to the grave. And, you know, and, and when that relationship is, is just right, the person is able to share whatever those things were. And a lot of the time, I think just about every time um, I've been involved with that, the other person's like, yeah, me too, you know, and share some of their stuff that they also thought they would take to the grave. Right. Right. Um, but because you'll be able to relate with this person and be like, hey, I know you think that's a terrible thing. And I've done that same terrible thing. And we're both still breathing. Exactly. And it's a really profound experience for both parties. Yeah, when you can sit with someone and be vulnerable at that level, what a gift. And they and they can accept you with compassion uh, and, and listen to you with a tenderness. It's a very, very powerful thing. You know, and, and I know I've shared this with you in the past, but, you know, you, you have become an Anamkara in my life. Well, shocks. <laughs> a soul friend. <laughs> and uh, I, w- I would really love to hear some of the Anamkaras in your life during your spiritual, uh, you know, if you'd like to share those specific people or just um, experiences that you had with, as you were growing and evolving. I mean, there's, I've come to realize that an Anamkara, a soul friend can be found in a brief moment in public Mm -hmm. from a stranger. And it's, and it's, it's just a crazy thing when it happens. So, for example, last, I believe it was about last year, I think it was last summer, uh, Jacob Nettie and I were visiting a, uh, it, it, was, it was a transitional living facility. And this uh, a woman who was running the place, and you could tell she was doing this more as a calling than she was as a profession. Okay. Uh, and even her educational background and her professional background, she could be living a much more comfortable <laughs> life than what she was doing here. Okay. And and, we, and she gave us the tour and we listened to her. And 
and I had some very personal things going on uh, with my family, and it, and she brought up a very similar situation. And she said one thing. She said, uh, if I get a call or a text from my daughter in the morning and I know she's alive, everything else in my life is gravy. Mm. And when she said that, that was life transforming for me in my, not just for my specific situation, but for many, you know, it can apply to others. So she became in that brief moment, a true soul friend and and I didn't, you know, call her, call her again, or email her and say, "Could you do spiritual direction with me?" Or right. can you <laughs> do that kind of? It was just that moment, you know. And then there were others like my own mother, uh, who've been there my entire life. Um, I suffered uh, quite a bit with asthma and lung-related problems as a child, and so my poor mom had to get up with me during an asthma attack in the middle of the night. Uh, which is where I, you know, got twisted by late night television, Johnny Carson, <laughs> David Letterman, Saturday Night Live. Yeah, just ruined. Talk about ruined. <laughs> and so. You uh, saw the face of God in them. And so she would throw me in the bathroom, turn on the hot water. And uh, so, steam, you know, she'd steam me, you know, mm. and I would. But she taught me how to meditate during those times to try to get me to calm down. So she'd have me close my eyes and imagine a peaceful place. She would describe the place, uh, and uh, and it, you know. So she was the first to to teach me to use imagination, imaginative prayer, if you will, to uh, stave off an asthma attack. So, so that, that's so is my mother being a soul friend, mm -hmm. truly teaching me a form of prayer. Uh, and so, yeah, so. You, you, everyone probably has soul friends and you don't even realize it. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. The people that you can be, I mean, even, even, um, you know, for me, a family, there's a particular set of cousins where I'm around them. I feel like I can really truly be myself. Yeah, exactly. And there's no judgment. And usually we're just trying to make each other laugh. So we're not, it's not, you know, any of this profound in the sense of like we're, that we're necessarily talking about meditation or prayer or contemplation. We have talked about those things, but a much bigger percentage of those conversations are just making each other laugh in the sense that when we part ways, your stomach is hurting the next day or later yeah. that day because of the amount of laughing you're doing together. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's 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 um it's a great gift to have those have those uh, friends, spiritual friends, um, in your life, and and for those that so the for those because I don't know if everyone has these in their life. For, for yeah, I, if you, I didn't realize that how gift what a profound precious gift it is. Mm -hmm. So we had a visitor here a couple of years ago, and. Uh, I was giving him the, the nickel tour of the place, and and, uh, and we ran into uh, Greg and Deanna Steele, and um, and we were just explaining to him our history, and and told you know our history goes back to our teenage years, and here we are, at the time heading for our fifties, mm. and the guy the guy was in his late sixties, and he kind of a, a sadness came over him, and he said. I don't have one friend that I've known that long that you guys have. 
And I realized, yeah, we really do have something uh, precious and you should, you know, it's worth fighting for and keeping. And, and so, yeah. So I, I get my, how would you suggest someone come in contact or, um, you know, going back to the contemplative lifestyle, you talked about grace, and I really think these soul friends come from a place of grace. Yeah. But, but maybe on a, a practical note or some guidance, how, how would you point someone, if someone came to you looking for a soul friend, um, you what, know, I, what I, advice would you give them? I, I'm not sure. You know, I think it would be different for each person. Um, you know, it just, it just depends. You know, part of being a soul friend is also being a, uh, learning how to listen and ask questions. And so that's kind of what I do. So I'll listen to them in the first meeting. Uh, and then I'll, I'll take it on my walks and then try to ask the questions that I hope that they're not even seeing. Mm. And, uh, and then, and then maybe that'll, then when they answer them to themselves and right. answer them to me, uh, maybe it'll give them the next step of a person, place or thing they need to go to. Uh, and so, yeah, so that's kind of how I operate with it. Yeah. And it, it's funny because, um, going back to that idea of not everyone having soul friends or a spiritual, uh, I don't want to say convenient, but a spiritual outlet that they really truly feel connected to. I remember, um, I think we talked about this last week or the week before, uh, being on the Camino de Santiago. And there was people there that had done it 10, 15, mm. 30, 50 times. Um, and when you would talk to them about it, it was always, well, not always, but a lot of the time, the camaraderie, mm. uh, the friendship, um, you know, the, the, the way of life on the Camino. And <clears throat> it, that gave me two outlets because I'm not going to go walk the Camino 50 times. That's just not going to happen. Right. Not, I have no interest in doing that. But it made me grateful for my spiritual community that I had built over the years. And I realized the real, for me, I can't, you know, obviously the people that have walked it so many times, it, it's feeding something in them. But for me, it was like, oh, the lessons I learn here and the people I meet here and the conversations I meet here, I got to take it back right. into my my real life mm -hmm. and incorporate it into the rhythm of life like we were talking about. Yeah. And so I I, I don't know I because I I don't know how I would advise someone either about finding yeah. a soul friend. It could also be, you know, maybe you bring up a good point that maybe ask the question, uh, what can I do to serve my community? What small mm -hmm. thing can I do? And, and start doing that first. Go serve a soup kitchen, uh, you know, a, a homeless shelter or taking care of uh, dogs on skid row. Uh, 
that kind of thing. And, well, it's, <laughs> and you'll find your community. Maybe. You will. Yeah. You absolutely will. That's, that's, yeah, that's, and it's got to be something you feel called to. Yes. Something that stirs your heart and, and maybe you're even a little bit afraid of it. Uh, yes. You know, it could be, you know, hospice is a, can be a scary thing to sit with a dying person. Um, Looking in their face, you're seeing your own face in death, and so, but you feel drawn to it. So, so there might be some, a little bit of fear to it, you know, a little bit of a challenge. Uh, could be working with kids. Maybe you, you know, there's something in you, you feel drawn to it, but you're also afraid of, you know, the way that middle school kids can tear you to pieces. So, mm. uh, well, and I think to kind of piggyback on that, if you are extremely excited about it. And terrified at the yeah, same exact exactly. time as exactly. you're walking into it. That's probably where you need it's to be. It's usually the sign, yeah. Yeah. For sure. You know, because I know I've done volunteer opportunities where I was kind of indifferent about it. And after doing it, I would either be, or while doing it, I probably enjoyed it. But afterwards, I'd either be exhausted or just be yeah. like, ah, I don't want to do that again. And there's other op- volunteer opportunities that... I've been chomp, you know, I was chomping at the bit when it was time to go do that. Um, I know you shared a few weeks ago about going into the prisons. Right. It just kind of fell on my lap. And And how did did you feel? Oh, yeah. Terrified and excited at the same time. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, yeah. I think think service might be your, for those wondering, you know, how do I find a soul friend? Uh, how do I find a, a spiritual community where I feel like I belong? It might be starting with that. Uh, uh, go go serve somewhere in the community. And it could be a church or it may not be a church. Mm-hmm. Um, and and in that service, you'll probably find a group of people that, that have the same sense of belonging as you or bring a sense of belonging to you. Right. They'll bring you, they'll, yeah. they'll invite you into their circle. And that's and community. become part of it, right? Well, and you might have to do 10 different things. Yeah, you absolutely. Know, you, you might have to go volunteer here for a month and go do that for a month. And, and um, one, of the thi- one of the things I know, so this is a personal story. When I, when I reach out to volunteer at places, if they, if they know... I haven't, if they find out I have my undergraduate in accounting, mm. they want me to do the books. Right. <laughs> I, I, will, I will do accounting, bookkeeping stuff to pay the bills. I'm not doing it in my free time. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to show up to you because I don't get excited. I'm not excited or terrified about bookkeeping. It, it bores me to right, death. Right. To my bones. <laughs> and so I try to hide that as much as possible because it's that's something they really need. Yeah, yeah. And so there have been there have been opportunities where it's like I really believed in the organization. In fact, the beloved community in oh, Las yeah, Cruces. Yeah. I do their bookkeeping because I love that community. I love what they're doing. Um, and I have a special place in my heart for Kay because she's amazing. Right. Uh, so I do do their bookkeeping, but it's they have so little to keep that it's. Yeah, it's, it's it, not it's not a burden, right? Like it's like okay, whatever. But you don't just because you have a skill or a profession, like you don't have to volunteer specifically in that. Like you can find other ways to volunteer yeah. that 
you know, get your heart excited. I think that's another thing to remember that if you're a lawyer, you don't necessarily have to do legal work for a nonprofit or for yeah. a volunteer op- opportunity. If you're a cook, you don't have to go to be at the soup kitchen and necessarily cook. You know what I mean? Like uh, if you love to do those things and you want to do it in your free time and a volunteer, then yeah. But um, there's so many opportunities to be drawn into service and to be drawn into a community, I, I keep your view wide as you're as you're looking for yeah, the one exactly. that, that stirs your heart. Yeah, definitely becomes a conspiracy of grace. And that's yeah. At the end of the day, that's all. In my opinion, that's all it's about. Yeah. Any good thing I've gotten has been a direct gift, an unwarranted gift from God. Right. You know, the the definition of grace. And anything that has gone afoul and crumbled in my hand is because I was trying to be willful and forceful towards it. Yeah, Cynthia Bourgeau told us, the mystics will tear down a door to get to you, the ones that want to get to you. (laughs) And I was blown away by that statement because it's so true. Yeah. Beautiful, my friend. Does that wrap up another? Yeah, let's, we can uh, we can call it another uh, another one in the bag. Uh, this this brings an end to our uh, our series, our two part series on Celtic Christianity. But uh, these themes will will continue to weave their way through Absolutely. our our conversation. And uh, yeah, did you want to maybe leave us with any uh, parting thoughts or parting words about? Uh, sort of the big umbrella Celtic Christianity? Uh, I, I would just... <laughs> <laughs> I put you on the you spot, my bad. <laughs> <laughs> if, if someone wanted to... to uh, a resource, name a resource, if someone wanted to delve down this hole of Celtic Christianity, what, what, where would you point them to begin uh, with? I, I would think a great book would be uh, uh, Listening for the Heartbeat of God by mm. J. Philip Newell. I think that's a great book, uh, and he's such a great writer, a great poet. I hope to meet him someday. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I should send an email at some point, right? Uh, <laughs> enjoyed tweet at yeah, him. I've enjoyed his writing so long. Uh, let him know it, you know. Right. So I think that would be, and then and then musically, for those of you who aren't really readers, uh, there's a a, a really under celebrated uh, artist named Jeff Johnson. Even when you look him up, the wrong Jeff Johnson will probably come up. <laughs> and uh, he's been a musician for a very long time. And, and he, and he uh, recorded an album called The Prayers of St. Brendan. Mm. And it's such a great, it's been, it's been a, uh, a staple in my, in my life, my spiritual life. So, yeah. All right, everybody, that, uh, that wraps it up for tonight. And uh, thank you 